Take your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in preparation for uh, taking just a couple weeks to look at the rest of this whole chapter. Um, we would like to take a moment to welcome our guests this morning. And uh, usually do this a little bit later, trying to switch some things up here for purpose of meditation flow, but we would be remiss if we didn't let you know that we're glad that you're here. If you've never received a gift from us, maybe the person you came with, or if you're by yourself, you're welcome just to lift your hand up high. We're not going to have you stand and be embarrassed. We'd like to recognize your guest presence with us today. So over here on the right, thank you there. Appreciate that. Anyone else? A number of you may have received those over here to my left. All right, thank you. I met that young man on Wednesday. We're glad he's back here this morning with us. And uh, good to see you again. And uh, I'd like to give you a little gift there to take home with you. Um, take it all home with you. We would just ask if you want to over the next 45 minutes or so, just kind of fill out the little guest card in there. There's a pen provided. You can slip that in the chair in front of you or give it to one of the fellas. They have those little white usher tags on their lapels of their jackets as you leave. Uh, we're just glad you're here. And I uh, hope you enjoy being with our church family. Of course, you're always welcome to come back. And, uh, and uh, hopefully what you'll see is a pretty simple place, a place that just uh, wants to know and love the Lord more and our Savior and grow to love his word and know his word more. And the same with his people, loving and knowing his people, and then also loving and knowing people in our community that need the same relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, God's afforded us, right? Uh, wherever we go in the natural rhythms of our lives, there's, there's people who need the Lord Jesus, and we trust that you're prayerfully considering um, those possible relationships with people that need him, and befriending those folks and genuinely loving them and caring for their souls. But that's about as complex as we get as a church. Love the Lord, love his word, love each other, and love people who need the Lord Jesus. And we'll try to keep it that simple as we all try to grow in Christ-likeness. Um, I want to take a moment here um, uh, just, just for a time of prayer. This, is, this has uh, been a difficult time of loss for some. And uh, many of you know um, Nancy McConnell in our church. Her son, Dan, passed away of COVID this weekend. And uh, Dan was just a little older than me, not much. And uh, Nancy's bearing up underneath that burden of her son's poor health for a pretty short time here. But um, a number of you also are familiar with the pastor at Mountain View uh, Baptist Church out in Grantsville, Utah, Ron Eamon. He's been here to speak before with his wife. And his wife, uh, Kathy, passed away of COVID uh, very, very quickly uh, this past month. Another friend of mine, Rob Finch, who's the music pastor at Brain Baptist Church in Lilburn, Georgia, uh, passed away. The Lord gave him about five or six days from diagnosis to passing. So I know Rob's family well for about 30 years. And um, 
he's also related in the family tree to, tree to other pastors that you know, uh, Will Cover in, in Houston. Um, and uh, Will's wife is related to Rob's family. And, and, uh, and then Jason Kokenzie, another friend of ours that was just here last week for the seminar, is related to that family as well. Uh, Jason's wife and Will's wife are sisters, twin sisters. Um, so Kathy Eamon, uh, Rob Finch, and those of you know that we helped replant the church in Troy, Missouri, uh, Cross Point Church, and, and their pastor, who's also been here and spoken in the past, uh, Jim Greenacre, passed away uh, very rapidly from uh, this virus as well. Uh, so you know in our flock, too, that uh, uh, Shauna Frank's grandmother father and mother uh, all passed away in less than a month from the same. Um, and uh, I think it's just a good time to just stop and pray for all these folks and their families, if that would be all right with you guys. We're a church family. We need to do this and, and uh, thankful that we can do it together. Um, if you know any of these folks abroad or certainly uh, Mrs. McConnell or Shauna in our church, we would hope that you would reach out to them and pray with them, uh, weep with them, and walk through this valley of the shadow of death with them. Okay? Uh, so let's pray together. We know from your word, Lord, we studied it earlier this year in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that you are the God of all kinds of comfort. You are able to minister particular comfort to your children at any moment of their life, regardless of the degree of difficulty. And Lord, there is no greater trial to endure than the death of a child who passes before we do as parents. We know that the Spirit of God that lives within Nancy has been ministering to her and will continue to capably do so. We pray, Lord, that she would rest in that comfort that he brings to her heart as the divine comforter that indwells her. I pray, Lord, that she would know continually that peace that surpasses human comprehension. I pray, Lord, for her other children and their family members, that they would know your comfort at this time as well. We've been praying, Lord, for, for Shauna and Steve, the kids, and family members of the Frank and Haslow families. And we ask, Lord, that today we would be found to be ministers of comfort to their own hearts and encouragement, that we would commit to continually holding them up in prayer for spiritual and physical protection. pray for Shauna's brother, a fourth next of kin relative that's been at death's door with this virus for the last week or so. You would be merciful and spare his life. 
Lord, we pray for the folks at Cross Point and Brian and Mountain View. We know these flocks hurt. We hurt with them. Give us wisdom, Lord, on how we can be an encouragement to them. And help us, Lord, to be the hands and feet of Christ in ministry to them. I think of our friend Jeff Estes in Boise, Idaho, that has spoken here and been here, and many of us are familiar with in the loss of this little a two-year-old in his church on Friday from a tragic accident. And uh, with all that Jeff's gone through uh, with his car accident and difficulty in the past year, uh, Lord, whatever this last 19 months has been, it certainly has been a test of your people in so many ways. It's allowed us to test how capable your grace is to bear, bear us through as we bear up under uh, these degrees of difficulty. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the testimony of um, this church and these churches that um, we would know your grace to bear us through as we bear up under what you sovereignly and providentially allowed to come our way. Certainly, Lord, you do give and you do take away, and your name is to be blessed in both circumstances. And we do that this morning as we pray for one another. So, Lord, may our love and our knowledge increase towards you and towards one another. And may we have the wisdom to have the hands and feet of both as we walk alongside each other. In this old earth, as we await the imminent return of your Son, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I know you'll go with these requests as well, and and um, glad that you will. We're going to take a moment to, to read the verses now that we're going to consider uh, this week and next, okay? Uh, it's going to take a couple minutes, so if you'll bear with me... Um, Paul's moving off of this military motif that he's used or utilized to describe for us these virtues of um, Christian soldiering, if you will, in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you're not there yet, you can head there, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, verses 7 to the end of the chapter, we're, we're not going to be finding that motif anymore, but really... Verse 7 through the end of the book, uh, Paul is just going to be pretty much describing to us um, what genuine faith is and what genuine faith does in the local church as opposed to that which is disgenuine, that which is not authentic. Okay? Remember, he's got the Corinthian hearts back in the palm of his hand. God's used his letters to bring them back into fellowship with the Lord, and, and he's got this opportunity now to take this teachable crowd of people and, and draw them more towards Christ's likeness, and, and 
One of the ways he does that is to just be a shepherd of this flock. Right? He just wants to be a protector. Right? And folks, that's just really what spirit-filled people are when they're walking with God, when they truly love the flock. They love to protect the flock. If you're walking with the Lord and you've been connected with a biblical, necessary, disciple-making relationship and you grow deeper in the word with those people, your desire is to never lord over them, but to walk with them through the natural rhythms of life in a spirit-filled way according to the word. And in that relationship, you desire to spiritually protect each other. That's natural. That's natural. Parents want to protect their children. Spouses protect each other. People that love each other protect each other. That's not difficult to comprehend. Well, people in the church do the same. Pastors oversee and they feed, right? First Peter 5, and they feed so they can protect. And you folks feed one another so you can oversee unto spiritual protection too, and it's absolutely essential to our existence as a local church. And that's all Paul's doing here. He's got folks, again, that have responded to the word, and, and he wants to protect them. But really, even in this second portion of this chapter, there's really no deep theology discussed. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no really way to exegete or extract uh, some theologically profound truisms from these verses. It's actually a, a difficult text to even outline, if you will, if you're note takers and you really love to keep copious notes and the flow of the text. It's it's just Paul going into uh, further protection mode of this sweet group of saints in Corinth that still are being shot at, if you will, right? Um, and this unbelief that we have described in this book is still uh, a small remnant inside the church. And, and the pot shots, really, uh, from outside the church don't ever stop. And so there's great protection inside the church soul to soul, shepherd to souls, so we can be aware of these people that, that Bible writers describe in just really descriptive ways. I mean, these are, these are ravenous wolves. <sighs> Take a deep breath, right? How in the world could any Bible writer talk about someone as a ravenous wolf? Hmm. That's hard to digest, right? Um, or wolves in, in sheep's clothing. These, are, these folks are, they're, they're religious gluttons. They love to serve their own appetites. That's how they're described. They're described as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember, Paul's described these enemies of both religious and philosophical enemies. So many more names and so many more descriptions, both personal proper names and, and descriptions of individuals and groups of people. But nonetheless, as we go through the 
third portion, the rest of the third portion of this letter, just know that Paul's in protection mode. And just know, right, that he's urging us, if you remember back to chapter 10 and verse 1, I urge you, right, I call you alongside to do the same thing. So whenever Paul does that, He's not in protection mode just himself for the whole flock. He's calling each one of you to come alongside and and help protect the flock too and protect each other too. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, we would say that's biblical and we would say that's necessary. And and anyone who really stiff arms that kind of transparent, genuine relationship and growth in Christ-likeness with another believer, we would say that they're probably leaving themselves unprotected. Uh, so that's something to continue to consider as well so let's read these verses understanding all those things verse 7 you are looking at things as they are outwardly if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's let him consider this again within himself that just as he is Christ so also are we for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, the unbelievers say, these ravenous wolves say, his letters are weighty and strong and his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent such persons, we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord for it is not, for is it not he who commends himself that is approved? For it is not he who commends himself that is approved but he whom the Lord commends. That's a lot. We're going to take two weeks to work through it. Um, Paul clearly is is describing um, two kinds of people here. Um, 
He's the shepherd of one, and he is the shepherd that warns of the other. Now, he concludes this whole section, obviously, in verse 18. Recently, I took some old coins, and when my dad passed away, he had given me this little Ziploc bag of, of coins I hadn't done anything with. I, haven't had, I hadn't had any time, and, um, and uh, so I recently took them to a friend of mine that determines the value of coins. And, uh, you know, when you go to get these coins valued, you know, you've got like 15, 20 coins in there. And he's like, wow, this one might look like it's something. And this one might look like it's something. And this one might literally look like it's something. And, and hey, maybe, maybe one of those coins is going to be like that Mickey Mantle rookie card you find in the attic that was your grandfather's that he never told anyone about. And he stored it away and it's in mint condition. All of a sudden, your net worth went from nothing to about $4 million, right? I mean, you're hoping like one of those coins. So I took him. Um, none of the coins meant anything of value. Right? But they're my dad's. So they're valuable to me. And I kept them all. Um, But you know the process of determining the value of a coin. There's there's a lot of tests that you run that coin through, right? Um, And he ran those coins through all those tests. And I watched him. And it took quite some time to just do a few, right? to come up with these are valuable because they're your dad's. And that's all good. Well, there's a, there's a term that Paul uses in verse 18 to summarize this section that talks about being a spiritual coin evaluator. Look at verse 18, right? He sums up this whole section about these two kinds of people, one group that he wants to protect and the other group that he wants to warn the protected group about. For it is, for is it not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. See that word approved? That's a Greek word that many of you are familiar with. It's the Greek word dokimos. And in the first century, there was actually a group of metallurgists that were called dokimos. And you would take your coins to them and those folks would verify whether your coin was counterfeit or whether it had genuine value to it. And they would put that metal, that coin, through all of these tests, right? And they would either give you a stamped piece of parchment that said approved or unapproved. And if it's unapproved, it basically had no value. You may have gotten this from your dad and its value is in a good family heirloom or keepsake. Or it's say, no, you could actually use this for currency. This has value. This has value. So, so Paul's saying here that there is one group that has spiritual intrinsic value to them. And the other would be adokimas. They would be disgenuine. They would be counterfeit without spiritual value. So he's really drawing a line here with this concluding verse of this section and letting us know that he wants to protect the valuable. He wants to protect the dokimas and he wants to warn about 
the disgenuine or the fake, if you will, or the counterfeit. Now, many of the counterfeit coins, very much like the counterfeit money today, had some real qualities to them. It was hard to tell the two apart, and you needed trained, skilled folks to determine between the two. As a matter of fact, you might go to a place where you hand them a 50 or a $100 bill, right? And typically most places, if they get anything over the size of a $20 bill, what are they gonna do? They've trained even their cashiers to, right? Put it up to the light, kind of look at the watermarks, right? To, uh, and some of them might even take a, a little marker and they mark over the bill a certain way because their eyes are trained to be able to see something that's there, that's put there by, you know, the federal government when they print money. And boy, they've been printing a lot of that lately, haven't they? So they, they, they just kind of like, they, 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 they just got to keep marking and they keep looking and they'll analyze. And basically what they're trying to figure out is if you've been counterfeited by handing them a counterfeit bill. The reason they do that is because counterfeits can make something look like the real thing. Right, just by, just by, by a glance and even maybe a short investigation, yeah, that looks real. We'll put that in the drawer and we'll give you change from it and so forth when actually it's a fake. So Paul knows that these philosophers, these religious ones that are both remnant inside the church and outside the church, they know how to Christianize their messaging. Are you with me? They know how to use Christian terms. They know what is valuable to the Christian local church culture. Okay. And when he says they are anti-Christ, they have no problem incorporating Christ into their belief system. So he's just basically saying in order to protect each other from these fakes, we've all got to be good analyzers of the fake currency, the fake spiritual currency, right? And so I'm inviting you, as Paul has invited the Corinthian church, I'm urging you to come alongside to let's learn together what dokimas and adokimas is so that we can protect each other. And my friends, this isn't going to be very difficult to understand. As a matter of fact, we already read Paul's definition of a fake. How to evaluate a fake. And we've already read, and we're going to kind of be extracting the truth from what we read about what a, a genuine faith is and what a genuine faith does. So, but I, what I want you to do first is before we dive into the truth content here, I want you to draw the circle around yourself. Because I've had to do the same thing as I've studied these lines and these verses over the past several weeks. I want you to draw the circle around yourself. Right? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 to search out our own salvation two ways. Do you remember what those two ways are? With fear and trembling. So when we go through these lists or these descriptions... The first tendency is of the believing mind and heart is to think of somebody else that might be the fake. That's easy to do, right? We're pretty judgy, right? I think it's our fallen nature, every one of us, to be pretty judgy. I'm pretty judgy, and if any of you say that you're not, 
Just bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's have an invitation. No, I'm just kidding. Right? We're all pretty judgy. I think what Paul's doing here is he's urging them to come alongside to first evaluate the veracity and the genuineness of their own faith. Because then and only then can you really protect the veracity and the genuineness of somebody else's faith and have them do the same. It's pretty simple. But as I did this, before I get up and preach, I've got to apply it to myself and I've got to try to do the best I can myself. But as I did this, I did find some measures of unbelief in my own soul. So you have to stop and you have to say, Lord, is this really me? And you have to get it right. And then you have to grow from it, right? So I would just ask you to do the same because it's not difficult to do. It's, the difficulty is not in the understanding. The difficulty is in the analysis of your own soul. All right, And then we grow forward from there. So there's going to be some vulnerable things going on in your hearts, as I'm assuming, as we're in mine. And, uh, and we'll go from there. Um, but that's okay. We will continue to do this with the same disposition Paul started chapter 10 with, right? Now I, Paul, myself, call you alongside. I'm going to do so by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So that'll be the disposition we have as we march through this whole passage together. So many folks in our day liken soldiering to fighting or contending. And that's not the kind of quality soldiering Paul's speaking of. As a matter of fact, fighting was the last thing on a true soldier's mind. Yes, he was equipped to contend and defend if he had to, but that was a last resort, not a first resort. The disposition of faith is the first disposition of Christ to exemplify gentleness and meekness. He preached its praise in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He also pointed out the meekness of Moses as an attribute of spiritual strength. And he was the most meek of any Old Testament character, at least in Christ's mind and heart. So we walk through verses 7 to 18 this week and next. Let's remember verse 18 and chapter 1 of Chapter 10. True people, genuine people, move forward with the spirit of meekness and gentleness. And by that way, godly boldness and spirit governed discernment become the spiritual weaponry, if you will, that we have in our arsenal if needed for ourselves personally, and then the body corporately. All right, so let's talk about the people of faith here, the dokimas, the the ones that need to self-protect and be protected. In verse 7, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Folks, this is actually, in the Greek language, a command. And I'm going to give you the literal translation of this. 
And it literally says, look at what is in front of your eyes. So he's asking the dokimos, the genuine, right? Don't ever stop examining what's right in your windshield. Don't live life in fear, but be aware of what's right in front of your eyes. Because he's about to draw attention to the unbelief that's in their windshield, that's outside their side passenger door and is in their rear view mirror. Don't live in fear, but be aware. Be aware. This is, this is who they are. So you're not going to find out what genuine is until you compare and contrast it with the disgenuine. Look at what's in front of your eyes. He's not, staying, he's not saying study what's there um, until it emerges. He's just saying, you know what? It, it's a bit more obvious than that, right? Don't look too hard. Don't be distracted to just being discerning. It's not that hard to identify these people. You folks remember the... The auto stereograms, remember those came out 15, 20 years ago? They were art. And if you looked at the art, these always bothered me because I really didn't know if there was some kind of like subliminal message coming out of these things. And people at church would come up, my kids would come up, and they would say, hey, Dad, look at this, and look at it for 30 seconds at one spot in the middle of the page. And he said, all of a sudden, there's just going to be this 3D image that pops out at you. And at first, I thought it was a joke. And so I looked at one. And I walked away thinking it was still a joke because nothing emerged. And so my wife took the same picture and in like 3.5 seconds, she goes, oh, wow, that's president. Right? It took me like a half hour and there was nothing, right? So then I'm challenged from the other room to come back because I'm not going to not see But I tell you what, once you got in the rhythm of looking at some of these things, the things like the, the pictures emerged a lot more quickly. I don't know if your brain was conditioned to just analyze it and see it more often, but I got pretty, pretty good at that. This is a little bit different than, you know, that which went viral on social media a handful of years ago regarding a particular dress by a particular designer as to whether it was blue or gold, was it, I think? Do you remember that? It's a little bit different. So Paul's not saying that, that this verb is not, you know, look at this a stereogram and see what emerges. He, he's basically saying, look, these, it's really simple to identify, so don't get freaked out by it. And, and there, there's a lesson in this, folks, trust me. Because if you come from a background of conservative Christianity, you were taught to always look at everything like it was some type of theological, philosophical auto-stereogram, right? Just look at there until something, there's got to be something bad in there, so it's going to come out. Trust me, just keep analyzing it, and you'll see it. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what biblical discernment is. He's saying, look, stop, it's right in front of your eyes, look at it, and he's going to describe it. And this is where we all have to take a deep breath and say, okay, wow. What's he going to describe? Right. Well, he goes to tell us that there are people who are Christ's and those who say they are Christ's. 
If anyone is confident, verse 7, in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also we are. So basically he's saying there's adokimos and there's dokimos, and they're both saying they're Christ's. Are you with me? Right? So there's the discernment. It's right in front of your face. There's two kinds of people by their nature who are saying they're the same thing spiritually. And he's saying, no, not, not really. So hang on. For he says, for even, verse 8, if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. So now he's starting to sharpen his pencil a little bit about the comparison of true faith and false faith. Let's back up here uh, a little bit. If anyone is confident in himself that he's Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Right away, he says, there's two different kinds of people. Both call themselves of Christ. And he continues to explain in verse 8. Remember earlier in our study of this book, I paused to explain how we should work with each other in our gradual growth in Christ-likeness. Recall I said Paul always, when he wrote, assumed faith, assumed growth, and then he could deal with the believer's humanity. Do you remember that? A lot of you have kept that in your hearts, and you have repeated that to me often for your own personal encouragement, and then for the personal encouragement of the person that you're discipling or being discipled by. Because Satan's a great accuser, isn't he? He's an accuser of the righteous. If he can, if he can um, unbless you from the feeling of the assurance of your salvation, my goodness, he's got his crosshairs on that. Right. Satan would love to always make you feel unsaved. But believers, dokimos, approved people, they always do something. Are you with me? Now, when I say always, I'm not saying we do this perfectly, because remember I said we, we tend to be pretty judgy. <laughs> right? So hang on. Spirit-filled faith always seeks to attempt to do something with every other believer that calls themselves Christ's. I am Christ's. Remember, two groups of people doing the same thing. So what does Paul do? He says here, I have sought to build you up. Right? And adakimah seeks to destroy. Now those are two opposite realities, aren't they? What's very interesting to me about these two words, building and destroying, they're not verbs, they're nouns in the Greek, Greek language. It's fascinating to me. Right? They're nouns within the context because Paul's trying to say, if you're Christ's, he built you. And what God built in Christ, man can't destroy. Even though unbelief's going to try to do it, over and over and over and over and over again. Um, 
my brother builds homes and he restores homes and um, he gets really, really busy restoring homes after hurricanes hit the coastal plain states, right? And, and he'll recount when he's with me uh, of homes that he's restoring and, and how much insurance money has to go into a home that was prepared for the hurricane and, and how, how much less money has to go into a home to be restored when it was prepared for the hurricane. So he's got this whole list. If I ever built a house or I ever bought a house on the coast of South Carolina or North Carolina, let me tell you exactly what it's going to be. No storm I've ever seen destroys a house that's built like this. And that's what Paul's saying here spiritually. No threat from the outside, from the adokimos, can tear Christ's building down, this divine noun, this divine entity, it's Christ's, not man's building. So, the adokimas show themselves very easily, very transparently, because they seek to deconstruct that which God in Christ has constructed. And there's very practical ways in which they do that. Um, and we'll examine those uh, together. So Paul's saying here, I'm assuming Christ built me. I'm assuming the Holy Spirit indwells you, Corinthian people. Your bodies are his temple. Whatever Christ has done, whatever God's done in Christ, he's done. It's permanent. It's undoable in the spiritual realm, right? Both Paul and Christ both said, look, man can tear apart the body, but they can't destroy the soul. What God has done in Christ in the soul is undoable by man. But man who is adokimos will seek to constantly try to penetrate that which has been built by God in Christ. And they do it in really, really, what looks like really, really juvenile elementary things and ways. It's really bizarre, but all of us have participated in these at some point in our past. Right? So I think we need some discernment and some analysis here because I'm not saying myself or you or Adakimas, but I think we can certainly act like them sometimes and we'll see that as we, as we go along. Okay, are you with me? So when we work with each other, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, we worship with each other, we shepherd each other. Every time we step into a room, every single time, I'm gonna emphasize this maybe until my last breath, right? You walk into a room with someone who's been built by Christ. You're never going to properly deal with their humanity until you deal with that objectivity. And boy, this certainly works if there's been another believer who's hurt you, right? Because when you've been hurt, you've been hurt. You go into that room, there's all kinds of emotions, there's all kinds of this, that, and the other, there's all kinds of proving why they're wrong and you're right and you are the victim. I mean, whatever it is. No, 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 you just stop, take a deep breath. The person who hurt you is built by Christ. 
So stop. Gather yourself. Right? And then assume they're growing. And then deal with their humanity. That's your responsibility as a believer. So, Pastor Tim, I do that with this person I'm discipling over and over and over and over and over and over again. And generally it proves profitable. But there's sometimes, no matter how long I'm gentle and meek and no matter how long I assume faith and assume growth, and when we get down to talking about our humanity and, and being transformed into Christ-likeness and holiness and growing together, there just seems to be this stiff arm and there's a separation of our relationship. Well, if that happens over years and months, months and years, there's reason to, to pray for that soul in a different way. But the majority of our relationships together, we should be assuming that we're built by Christ, right? And there's nothing that can tear that down. And so we assume that there's going to be growth and if we start to be judgy first, how does that work with the restoration of a relationship? Right? Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged, but judge a righteous judgment. There is discernment that can't be cast to the wind, but I'm telling you there is no Christ discerning until we assume there's faith and growth. He did say, judge a righteous judgment. He just said, don't be judgy. So he continues to explain here. His apostolic authority, which I don't think is the center of attention here. It's, it's, it's here. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think this whole thing is him urging Corinth and us to come alongside, consider these things, and moving on to be approved. Or, in verse 18... But he's certainly talking about himself being trusted or not trusted. And the first thing that the adakimas do is to try to dismantle the trustworthiness of the dakimas. If the fake can make the real look or sound fake, then it's fake. It's not, but it is just because they say it is. I call this cultural Gnosticism, Right? If I judge you and I say you're something and you're not that, and I say, well, yes, you are. Hey, if that's what I think you are today, that's what you are. That's my truth about you, right? Cultural Gnosticism. I get to define within my own sphere, my own culture, who you are and what you are and what you can never be. That's just who you are, all right? That's destroying that's not building up, okay? That's destructionism. That's not, well, you could do mia, the Greek word for, for building up. And I seek, Paul says here, to be a builder, not a destroyer. Verse nine, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. We already read this. For they say, the document says his letters are weighty and strong and his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. 
Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word and letters, while absent such a person, we are also indeed when present. So let's dive into this a little bit further and we'll wrap up for this morning. Okay. Paul clearly states that an authority has been given to him by God and that authority rested in being Christ's and sharing his message and the work of Christ, as we've already said, is a noun. And he says here, I want to build you up. And this literally means to increase the potential of someone or something with the focus on the process involved. That's how the Corinthian here would have heard this, to build up Right? To build up to the potential. What's our potential? Christ likeness. Right? Christ likeness, not Tim Potter likeness. Right? Christ likeness. And we are embraced in the process. This is not a rubber stamp. This is a house that God built in Christ and, and we maintenance it. Yadakimists are destroying. That literally means to cause someone or something to be less able or to lose capacity, to weaken, to tear down, or to make less able. So what Paul's saying here, anyone that comes into your life that makes you less able to grow in the process of being Christ, the reality of being Christ, be careful of that person because we want to be shepherds of souls that make it more possible to make more people able to maintenance growth in Christ's likeness. Are you with me? Those who are destroyers, as we head through verses 9 and 10 and 11, are very clear here. The first description of someone who's disgenuine is someone that likes to criticize. Write that down. Adakimas loves to criticize and not discern. Unbelief is very judgy. It's right here in the text. The enemies of that which was genuine were philosophical, religious, and cultural externalists. So what did the philosophical and religious and academic fakes do to destroy Paul's reputation and authority given to him by God? What'd they do? They did what they did here in, in verses 10 and 11. They said he was... He was one who loved to exercise undue authority over them. Letters are tough. We already dealt with that a couple weeks ago, but he's a wimp in your presence. He's unimpressive in his speech. Throughout the whole book, chapter 3 and verse 1, unbelief criticized him for not having enough diplomas on his wall or enough reference letters in his back pocket. He's not professionally worth your listenership. Right? right? He certainly doesn't have a lot of followers. He doesn't have a lot of influence. I mean, really, if you look at the philosophical, academic influence, religious influence of all of us compared to Paul, he's kind of like a spit in the ocean. He's really not that much anyway. That's chapter 3 and verse 1. 
They said it's here in other places, chapter 5 and verse 12, that Paul's appearance was unimpressive. The earliest, the earliest historian that we have that describes Paul's physical presence says this, that he was short, almost completely bald, had crooked legs, wrinkled skin, and a unibrow. That's Paul, right? That's Paul. So unbelief was actually saying, you know what? He writes these tough letters and when he gets with you, uh, even his, not just his physical presence, but his rhetoric, his speech, right? His speech was unimpressive. You can look at chapter 11 and verse six ahead. What does it say? But even if I have unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul admitted he was not skilled in rhetoric. But my goodness, if you were going to be a mathetes, a disciple of a philosopher of that day, I mean, rhetoric was something you must, you, you must be very good at. You must be easy listening or easy to listen to. Paul wasn't. He didn't have the physical appearance and they discredited his message because of these external things. If you read verse 11, or chapter 11, and verse 22 through the end of the chapter, which we don't have time to do this morning, they were even trying to discredit his Jewishness. Religious people were kind of racist. Adakimas were racist. Paul was a Jew. You know his testimony, Philippians 3. Even within the own letter, he was a Jew of all Jews, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And they were saying, well, I don't know. I think we need to doubt his family tree just because he says he is doesn't mean he is because he's not acting very Jewish. Because this is what Jews think and this is what Jews believe, right? And he's certainly not that. Or read those verses in, few, in weeks ahead, maybe even a little bit more. Uh, next week. And so they made, they made it their focus to destroy this which God had built in Christ, in Paul, and therefore the Corinthian believers as well. And Paul's gathered them back, got them in the palm of his hand, and now he just goes into protection mode, and, 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 and he protects by describing Unbelief just criticizes and it destroys. Unbelief is never satisfied until it's convinced that it's destroyed what needs to be destroyed. Okay. Unbelief doesn't believe a person can be maintenanced in the process of Christ-likeness. Are you with me? Hang on with me here, especially those of you who are 15 years old to 40 years old. Unbelief, I'm not saying you're unbelief, but just think about your generation. It's a very critical generation, more critical often than analytical. Right? Be discerning, no problem with that. I think the Bible calls for a biblical discernment. We've already talked about that, but remember this. When your criticism gets to the point where 
of another believer who is Christ to the point where you don't believe anymore they can be maintenanced in the process of Christ's likeness of that which Christ built, you've got a severe issue going on in your heart. All of us have been around judgy people all of our lives. We are those people. I have been all of my life. I have been judged by some really, I don't even know if they were saved. I hope they were people in my life. And I've been, people have been very judgy to me and I know they were saved. What's the only way I maintenance relationship with someone who was very judgy to me? I didn't build them, Christ did. So I'm assuming faith. I'm assuming they're growing. And I'm going to go be part of their humanity in a loving relationship to make sure they are, because why wouldn't I want them to grow in Christ-likeness? Right? The problem is, a lot of times, those people were older than I was. It's kind of hard to talk to someone who's older than you. So it's better just to classify them, quarantine them out of your life, and go move on, assuming that there's no maintenancing of the Spirit going on as they grow up in Christ-likeness, so there's never... There's never a meaningful, heartfelt conversation. And Paul's saying, don't become like that which he's describing, which is adakimas. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Discern. Assume faith. Assume growth. Work on the humanity. And be careful because if there's a cessation of your heart towards them prematurely, just be careful. I don't know if you've seen the Avengers movie Endgame, right? right? The arch enemy of the world is Thanos, right? So my kids watched it. I watched it with my kids and I, and I didn't tell them until the end. I said, you know what the Greek word for Thanos is? Right? As far as I know, it's death. Right? And what's he doing? Right? It's like these, these biblical proportions. He's wiping out 25% of the world's population. Then 50, you know, whoever wrote Avengers Endgame had read their book of Revelation. You just had to, right? Because, I mean, you see these huge portions of population being removed. Thanos, when all the Avengers find him, right? And they cut off his arm and they find out all the jewels which rule the earth. Some of you who are Avengers, people are probably saying, just stop describing this. You're blowing this completely away, right? right? I know one of my kids is, is, is live streaming me right now and I'm going to get a text imminently. Dad, just stop trying, right? So remember that the, these jewels are gone. The five jewels are gone from his knuckle parts of his hand and they're all devastated because how in the world are they going to save the world to have the ownership of these pretty things? And Thanos stands there, he sits there. They're all around, he knows it's over. And he says what? I am inevitable. Right? It's true. Death is, right? I say all that to say this. This, this is the mindset Unbelief, adakimas, have a Thanos mindset. I am inevitable. My influence is a never-ending influence of seeking to destroy that which Christ built, 
Even though Thanos knew he could never do it, he always believed he could. And that's the antithesis of what a spirit of Christ is, right? It's the antithesis, right? So the people of God are builders, they're not destroyers, right? They're always finding Christ in each other and they're always coming along each other and trying to grow each other towards Christ-likeness. And, and boy, that's a glorious agony, isn't it? It's so necessary for all of us. It's necessary for me and for you. And Paul's just saying, come alongside, let's do this together. Because it really is that easy to spot, right? These seeds of unbelief or these realities of the unbelieving. It's not so hard to find out. So let's kind of take it to heart and, and protect each other as we go along. And there's lots more to come in these verses next week as we wrap it up. Uh, chapter 10. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you uh, so much for the simplicity of your word. Thank you for the, the, the patience of the Spirit of God as demonstrated in the Apostle Paul. Um, we thank you, Lord, that he was humble and gentle and yet bold. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that he was always about the building up of that which Christ had built, the maintenancing, and pray that we would be the same and we would take ownership of that and we would not think that we could do this Christian life all by ourselves. We thank you for the local church and its essential part in our lives. We thank you for the one another's in this room that are essential to me and essential to each other as we seek to maintenance the ability that we have in Christ to grow into his likeness. And help us, Lord, to guard ourselves personally and then collectively from being destroyers. Help us, Lord, to be edifiers. This old life's hard enough to live in the world that we live in right now. So when we gather together, it needs to be some of the greatest encouragement we have in the course of our year. So we intentionally gather with the body in Jesus' name. Amen.